Peace. Welcome to this special edition of Bootstraps Podcast. I'm your host, Anefriesian. A couple of weeks ago, I had the honor of hosting a roundtable discussion with several of my University of Michigan Raw School of Business alumni friends. And um, we had a really great and engaging conversation around racial bias as well as systemic racism in corporate America. So I'm not going to give a long introduction. I want to get, get, get into this episode as quickly as possible. But before we do, I have two quick favors to ask. For those of you that are new to the podcast, please go ahead and subscribe to it. And if you're on Instagram, go on over and give us a follow at Bootstraps Podcast. Let's get into it. Thanks, Mary. Really, really appreciate it. Thanks to everyone who's tuned in. Thanks to all the panelists that are here. Really, my goal today is to try and have you guys hear more from these brilliant panelists than you do hear from me. But I'll, I'll set this up really quickly and provide a bit of tone, uh, I guess, to, to get this rolling. If you take a look back at systemic racism and oppression in our country, it has a 400-year head start. It has 400 years of momentum, that uh, produced compounding privilege for some people and compounding disadvantage for others simply based upon the color of your skin. Now, this is not meant to be alarmist or negative. We, but we, we need to address what's actually happening in our society and has been happening since its inception. And I think having open conversations like this creates a great opportunity for us to actually start to create progress in a real and meaningful way. If you take a look back and uh, take a step back and take a look at the world that we actually live in, African-Americans or black people represent about 12% of our population here in the United States. If you look at college graduates, black people represent about 10% of college graduates. And as you move into the professional ranks, you start moving up the ranks, you get to middle management, black people represent about 7% of middle managers you're starting to see that there's some drop-off. You get the senior level management, who represent about 3%. And you get the Fortune 500 CEOs, is just under 1%. So there's something that's happening in this process where we're being weeded out. And in this world that we actually live in, it, it produced this really compelling quote from Ken Chenault, who's the former uh, CEO and chair of American Express. He said, I'm gonna read, verbatim. He says, it's embarrassing because there are thousands of Black people who are just as qualified or more qualified than I am who deserve the opportunity, but just haven't been given the opportunity. I think what you're going to hear in this panel today is stories and firsthand accounts and just a perspective from very talented African-American men and women who are, and who are experiencing very similar things that Mr. Chenault experienced and they have a unique perspective that oftentimes is shared amongst ourselves, but not shared too openly. And I'll give one anecdote. This is not the only time it's happened in my career, but one anecdote that happened that I thought was quite interesting was at one point I had to mentor and teach my manager skills that were fundamental to our job and the, the craft that we practice as brand managers. So, in what world does that happen? Does that make sense? In which a person gets to be a manager but needs to be trained and taught in how to do their job. 
by their subordinate. Um, and this leads to this very interesting point around this question I've heard oftentimes with different companies I've been at, I always get really involved in recruiting. Whenever there's a chance for me to get whatever company I'm working at to get back to Ann Arbor to recruit, I'm trying to push us there because I definitely believe we do produce the leaders and the best. But in different companies I've been at, the question gets posed, is there something inherently off in our culture? The reason why we don't have more black people um, within the company and making up the ranks, or is it our recruiting process? And the blunt answer is it's both. It's pretty much everywhere I've been, I've seen a lot of bias, whether intentional or unconscious and unintentional bias in how we approach recruiting, and then how we approach day-to-day -day management, performance and reviews, who we get promotions to, who we don't, et cetera. And so I think today is gonna to be a really rich and engaging conversation around these issues. And I'm gonna kind of fall back into the background and be more of a facilitator going forward and asking questions this amazingly talented panel that we have before us today. And I'm gonna let them introduce themselves beginning with Victoria. Thanks, Neff. Hey everyone, I'm Victoria Tinsley, MBA class of 2015. And I am currently the head of partnerships of Valence, um, which is a new um, venture-backed tech um, platform and community that is specifically designed to connect and empower black professionals across the globe. Um, so we really focus on, on mentorship, career advancement opportunity, executive development, and um, access to capital for Black founders and Black entrepreneurs. Um, prior to that, I held a variety of marketing leadership roles um, within AAA, including the Vice President of Marketing Insights and Data Analytics. Um, before that, I was at General Mills with, with Courtney on the brand management side of things. And then prior to earning my MBA, I actually worked for another tech startup. Um, here in San Diego for about seven years in a variety of roles um, before we officially kind of went through the IPO process and um, became a unicorn before unicorns were a thing. So really excited to, to connect with all of you today and have a really open and honest, candid conversation about, um, you know, our experiences as, you know, Black professionals in, in America. Awesome. Well, I think I'm up next. My name is uh, Courtney Schroeder. I am a class of 2013. I had a quick chance to check the chat and I saw some names of people who are on this call right now who I haven't talked to in years. And I just can't say how much, uh, how great it feels to be uh, with some fellow Wolverines. Uh, I just, you know, I absolutely love my time in Michigan. And so uh, on the career journey front, I currently am a DNI manager at General Mills, been at General Mills since graduating. So about seven years, um, started off in brand marketing and then found my way over at diversity and inclusion. I think for those who knew me or know me, um, you know, looking back at what I was doing when I was on campus from a BBSA to GBR, you're probably not surprised I found my way to DNI. Definitely wasn't the career I had in mind when I applied to Ross, but uh, you know, it's been a fantastic experience and it's been, needless to say, a really interesting last, um, you know, three to six months. You know, today I'll try to provide perspective both as my, uh, you know, my personal experiences, but also give you the lens of which I see uh, DNI and how it plays into uh, some of the conversation we're going to have today. So uh, excited to kick it off, and uh, you know, I'll turn it over now. Hi, Letitia Shaw, uh, MBA class of '09. I'm a director of product marketing at User Testing. Uh, it's a solution where we help teams gather human insights about their product, their brands, and other customer experiences. Uh, before I got to User Testing, I was working at Evernote, uh, another late stage startup. 
where I was working in product marketing, but I also was leading growth initiatives on, in, within the product management team. Um, and then before that, I worked at uh, Disney Studios, where I started off as a brand manager and then ended up starting and uh, leading a team that was focused on addressing challenges the industry had around piracy, illegal downloading, and streaming from a marketing strategy perspective, um, as well as a business intelligence perspective. Before I got to Ross, um, I've, I had a, a different type of life and career. I started off in the pharmaceutical industry working at Merck in operations and then managed to work my way into more of a demand management role within research and development. And that's uh, the time that I decided I wanted a career change to move into more of a marketing and strategy role and uh, decided to go back to school and go to Ross. I'm really grateful for um, not only Inefre, but Michigan Ross putting this panel together because there just frankly aren't enough conversations about uh, the blind spots, the biases, the inequities that exist uh, in, for Black Americans um, in corporate America. So I'm really just grateful that we have this opportunity to have this conversation today. Good evening, this is Marty Smith, um, MBA 2006. Um, again, thanks for having me for this conversation as well. Uh, I'm currently based in Washington, D.C., uh, work with Buzana Hamilton in the area of management consulting. Um, I practice uh, specifically focused on federal clients, including um, the Air Force, NASA, uh, as well as uh, Space Force uh, that, that is happening. Um, in addition to that, um, prior to uh, what well. In that particular area, my practice primarily focuses on organization design, which is largely the standing up new organizations, merging organizations together, or either transforming a particular organization. Um, prior to Booz Allen, I worked in brand management. Uh, and then prior to my time at Ross, I worked in finance uh, in the oil and gas industry. Uh, lastly, I'll say I'm also a volunteer in the area of board governance. Um, I volunteer with the Greater Washington Urban League. Uh, as well as to spend some time volunteering with charter schools as well. So excited to be a part of this conversation. Yeah. Awesome. I'm glad that you guys all are, are here. And uh, I think this is a pretty impressive panel. I appreciate you all for accepting the invitation to come out and talk about these things uh, in a public forum, which is, you know, sometimes could be comfortable or uncomfortable. Um, but I think it's definitely worthwhile. And let's go ahead and get a little uncomfortable. First and foremost, wanted to ask all of you guys, like, just how are you doing? Like, it's every, 2020 is a cluster of a year, right? Like, everyone is suffering through it. I think, you know, Black people in particular are having a really interesting time trying to navigate this newfound wokeness that's happening in our society. Um, so with everything that's happening, uh, just how are you guys doing? I want to open it up to the full panel. Go ahead. I see you off mute. It's been a year. <laughs> to be honest, it has been a year. Um, yeah, I mean, I think in terms of, you know, the pandemic and, and shutdown and all that, that's been a huge adjustment um, for me personally, just in terms of what we've been trying to build with, with Valence and a company that is specifically, you know, for Black professionals. It's been, um, as you said, a, a varying degree of wokeness from our kind of corporate partners and, and people of the like that are now um, you know, coming to terms with their current recruiting practices, their learning and development practices, the fact that they have, you know, 
um, C-suites and boards that have, um, you know, that all look the same in many cases. And so it's, it's been an adjustment, but, um, but very, very grateful to have, um, you know, this community and, you know, personal communities to kind of lean on during this time, for sure. Courtney or Maurice, how are you guys doing, Letitia? Can you guys hear me? We can, yeah. yeah I'll jump in. I'll, um, you know, it's a, it's a great question. And depending on the week you find me, I'm going to give you a different answer, right? And so um, I'd say, you know, on, on the personal front, there's a piece of me that, um, you know, as we talk about, and we'll get into this, as we talk about privilege, if we are, if you're on this call right now, you're an alum of one of the greatest business schools ever, some argue the greatest business school ever, which means you probably are making, um, you know, a decent salary. And I'd also argue that when everything hit and you had a quarantine, you probably transitioned from either going to the office uh, to a home office, right? And many of you actually probably have an additional bedroom. And um, I think when I look at it from that perspective, I feel incredibly blessed. I'm blessed in the fact that, you know, I'm able to have uh, economic security in a way that most Americans don't have, right? And so there's a piece of me that feels just tremendously blessed. But I will say there's a piece of me that, uh, you know, living in Minneapolis and being at ground zero of where George Floyd is murdered, the uprisings, and, um, you know, everything that's going on, there's a piece of me that continues to be torn, like uh, WB talked about, of uh, this warring soul that, that's being torn apart about the America that you want to believe in and the America that you actually experience as a Black American, right? And so, um, and I think it's going to be an interesting conversation today because, you know, uh, one day you're so hopeful. One day, you know, I, you would have caught me, you know, three months ago, I was talking about, let's just get rid of systematic racism. And I fully believed that we were going to have a shot at it. And then one day you catch me and it feels like not only have we taken a step back, we've taken a, a century back, right? And so um, it really depends on, on where I'm at in the day. But overall, I'm incredibly blessed. I'm uh, tremendously, you know, grateful to have a network of support and people who I know and to have the opportunities I have. Um, but I'm also just um, anxious about where we're headed as a country, right? And I think the next two months are going to show a whole lot about who America is uh, versus who America says they are versus who America really wants to be. Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a great point. And so, you know, you brought up something about the, the, the privilege of being a Michigan alum, the fact that it's widely and probably rightfully considered the best business school in the world. So... I wanted to ask Maurice, you know, when you went through the application process to go ahead and uh, apply to business school, what was it about Michigan Ross as a black person specifically that attracted you there? And then what was your experience like at Ross? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So I will say that the first time I visited Michigan, I said, I absolutely have to go here. Um, I didn't know prior to visiting about its legacy uh, and being a champion for diversity. Um, but my first visit, uh, you know, I just kind of knew this is where they are in the ranking. I'm checking out top 10 schools. Uh, so let me get my coat and uh, make a trip to Ann Arbor. Um, but when I got there, I went there first for a BBSA conference as a prospective student um, and really just got exposed to just kind of like all of the black talent that was there, uh, but not just that they were there but that they were truly like integrated into the campus and the culture and the fabric of the university, which says a lot about them, but also says a lot about everyone around them uh, in terms of how embracing and accepting they were of that. And so really like at a blink, 
uh, moment, you know, that kind of experience, that first trip, I immediately felt that. Um, but I didn't necessarily have an appreciation of what, how Michigan got to be that way. Um, by my second year, one of my greatest experiences was to co-chair the BBSA conference. Um, and, and that year, um, we used our final reception to honor uh, and rename the conference after Dr. Uh, Edwards that Maureen uh, spoke to earlier, uh, Dr. E. And, you know, I, it was just really just grateful to be a part of that whole experience of really having that outpouring of appreciation for what he did and what he led to drive Michigan to be uh, the champion of diversity uh, that it was. Um, and so it was just really, and for the faculty, students, alums, uh, everyone coming together to kind of express that uh, appreciation for him. And so it was really just, it's one of those moments where you really like get to see up close someone getting to smell flowers, uh, or getting the flowers while they can smell them, right? Uh, and I'll get to share one more story uh, related to that. Uh, leading up to that uh, BBSA conference in my second year, uh, we had a chance, opportunity to sit down and actually interview Dr. Edwards and uh, hear him tell the story and you know his experience about uh, kind of driving, uh, being a champion of diversity at, at Michigan and joining in the consortium in uh, 1983. For those that may not be familiar with the consortium, uh, it's a nonprofit organization whose mission is to really address the things, things that Nefri was talking about in the beginning, diversifying the senior ranks of corporate America and aim to do so by diversifying top business schools. Uh, Michigan is a member of that and joined in 1983 under the uh, leadership of Dr. Edwards. Uh, but he was talking about uh, those early years, uh, well before all time, um, those early years of you know starting those conversations with the member schools and with the consortium. We've talked about how you know they were in a meeting uh, and they had already kind of determined you know which students were being accepted uh, to what schools, and now they were starting to talk about who's going to be actual consortium fellows, which is to say who's going to get scholarships. Uh, and he mentioned they were going around the table and different schools were saying you know how many they could take, and he said one school said we'll take two, another school said we'll take one, another school said we'll take three. He said, when it came around to him, he said, Michigan will take 50, right? And so he just said, the room just kind of erupted. We're like, we can't take 50. And he was like, oh, yes, yes, we can. We're taking 50. And so to, to, we're in this conversation now. I just wanted to highlight that because a lot of times we talk about diversity and inclusion. A lot of times it sounds like it's never been accomplished before. Uh, and it sounds like no one has figured out how to do it. Uh, but Michigan, you know, did this several decades ago and really drove that into the fabric uh, of the school. And so, so overall, my application process uh, was pretty good because I got in, uh, <laughs> but uh, my, my experience as well at the time in Michigan, you know, I think that, that what I first experienced the first time I stepped on there, I experienced the whole time I was there. And I think that, uh, you know, we rest on the shoulders of the people who drove that type of change. Yeah, that's, I think that's a really great point. I would love to hear from the rest of the panel, but I want to stress one point really quickly based upon what you just said, Maurice, which is we often talk about systemic racism and diversity and inclusion, those things, as if it's this big nebulous thing that's outside of us and there's this system that's in play that there's some boogeyman behind the curtain that's making it go forward. But it's all of the decisions we do and we don't make. Um, a former manager of mine who actually may or may not be on this call, he's actually uh, of Michigan Ross alum, Hank Mercier. He, I remember he used to stress and sometimes annoy me when he would say it. 
he would say that not making a choice is a choice, right? And so you look at Dr. E, he could have just went about his business. He had his, you know, tenure professor position at Michigan Ross, but he chose to make a different choice and had this massive impact. And now we all know each other, we're all Michigan alum, we're having this roundtable. All of this is a direct kind of derivation of something he decided to set in motion. So for all of us on this call right now, think about the decisions you make and also think about the decisions you don't make. Because when you sit idly by, you know, you have a massive impact on people's lives and the company. But I would love to open up the rest of the panel if you guys have anything else you want to ask. I know Dr. E is such an iconic part of um, our culture as, as Black Michigan alum. And if, all right, well, let's, let's keep it moving. We can get back to Dr. E later. Victoria, I had a, I had a question I wanted to ask you. You, you, you had spoke earlier about uh, working with a lot of client partners and corporations who have um, come to realize, I think, where they have some opportunity areas around diversity and inclusion. And we've all seen, like, there was this barrage of, like, really bold, what I call full-throated, statements about Black Lives Matter, systemic racism is wrong, we're gonna be anti-racist, we're gonna end racism. And it was really awesome to hear, but also like, really? Like, are you really gonna be committed to this? And so I would love to hear your perspective on what it's been like hearing all of these big statements from, from companies and do you think they're gonna fall through, follow through or is it like more so performing arts? I hope it's not performing arts, honestly. Um, you know, we all saw about, you know, a week after the George Floyd murder, all these press releases coming out, really, really big uh, statements, as you mentioned, starting to come through. And um, and yeah, I mean, some of them, it felt like they were not genuine at all. It was just, we're following the, we're following the boat. Everyone's saying something, we gotta say something too, hurry up, put something out there. Um, others are making huge commitments, which was huge, right? you know, $500 million here, you know, NFL billion dollars coming forward from, you know, um, different, different areas. And I think that there's um, really, really, really good intentions behind all of it, to be honest with you. I think now that these big statements have been made, these organizations are now having to figure out, well, now what do we do? We said, we're going to do this. We said, we're going to make this commitment. We said, we're going to take our, you know, black employee base from 1% up to the 12, 13% to, to reflect the communities that we serve. And their recruiting teams, their their DNI teams, their learning and development teams are like, wait, wait, what did we just sign up for? You know, so it's it's been one of those things where they're having that realization internally, and then you know, reaching out to um, you know the nonprofits and the Black Alumni Associations and things like that to just figure out like where do we begin? Which I think is great. It's a step in the right direction, but there's some really really big claims, and I think. Um, you know, Sherelle Dorsey is one of our awesome, you know, Valence Spotlight members, um, but she also runs uh, the plug. And so she and her, you know, data scientist team have been tracking every single statement that all of these Fortune 500 companies, even some of the smaller startups have made to hold them accountable. They're tracking what they said, they're tracking when they said it, they're tracking what the commitment was, they're tracking how many black employees they have today, and, and we'll, we'll see. So um, I think in the past, there has been a lot of you know, kind of big, big statements being made, but there was no tracking, no one was holding them accountable. And um, I'm, I'm really grateful for her and her team to, to actually step up and start to, to at least measure it so that we can see what comes from it. But, um, but yeah, it has been a lot of um, personal kind of reflection on, on uh, 
the, the part of our partners for sure. Yeah, and I'll, I'll uh, as Courtney, I know that you work in the DNI space, right? So you've been working, in particular, helping General Mills for some time. Uh, continue to improve. I know that from from the outside, they have a pretty big commitment to DNI. But this is a space that you actually um, you spend every day in. You, you, this has become your area of expertise, so to speak. So, how do you feel about these big statements that's been made and and anything that you'd want to add to this conversation around, you know, companies and their accountability. Yeah, I think there's two pieces I'll add. I think the first piece is if you go back to, um, you know, a lot of this being sparked by George Floyd and the uprising, right? And I think a lot of us, you know, uh, for those who work in corporations who said something, you felt proud. You were in the moment, you were like, I'm glad my company said something. I'm glad my company did something. Um, but I think, you know, what happens is you get caught in a moment and I don't know if you watch, but when you saw the video of Jacob Blake, you know, and you see these ongoing kind of issues, you realize that um, making a statement's one thing, but actually creating systems change is a completely different thing, right? And so, you know, if you think about the black wealth gap, that is a trillion dollar issue. So I love the money that's being thrown out there, but, you know, the piece that's actually going to create that sustained change um, isn't just a, a proclamation that you're increasing representation. It also includes lobbying your, your local government to actually change policing laws. Uh, it includes thinking about who you actually support from a political perspective. There's a whole gambit of issues um, that actually need to happen to actually create that change. Um, but I think to make it more on a, a data, you know, a day-to-day -day level, you know, those who've read Robin DiAngelo's uh, White Fragility, I had a chance to see her speaking. You know, Robin said, um, you know, as a white woman, she said, white people in America can go their entire lives from, uh, from birth to, to death without having to have a significant interaction with a person of color, and they wouldn't even realize that they're worse off for it. And so when you think about what actually needs to happen within the walls of corporate America, it is um, down to the human behavior and the day-to-day -day interactions of hiring managers, of HR, of VPs, of an entire culture uh, that has to come together and, you know, training people and helping people understand and um, bridge across their fear, uh, bridge across, you know, something that they're not used to, they're uncomfortable. Uh, it's not easy. You know, we all have these biases. These biases work against us in many ways against these goals and taking people on a journey to address that bias, taking people on a journey to figure out their own privilege and willingness to sacrifice that privilege for the benefit of others. Um, you know, it sounds you know, you can put it out there, but when rubber hits the road, that's actually um, what actually matters most, right? And so I do think Victoria is right. Like, there is going to be a reckoning one day. Um, the question will be, you know, who actually is able to make progress. Progress is absolutely achievable, um, but it takes sacrifice, it takes sustained commitment, and it takes trade-offs, right? And so um, we will see how that, that works out, and um, y'all leave it at that. Appreciate that. I think the, the, the trade-off point, like that's where when people get beyond like their feeling statements to get to what are you going to actually going to do, right? Like it's, it's a luxury to just hang out in your feelings when there's practical, tangible oppression that folks are having to live through. Um, and so you find out what people's priorities are when it comes time to actually make really tough decisions. I think wanted to give a bit of a broader um, perspective or insight to our listeners who are attending this, uh, this hangout today. So 
just about every black person I've ever known, regardless where they're from, from the West Coast, like me in California, down South, which the people who raised me actually were from the South, Midwest, East Coast, it doesn't matter. You were raised being taught that you have to be twice as good to get half as much. Mothers start teaching that like really young, like single digits in age while you're in elementary school, trying to get you prepared for what it's going to be like to kind of walk through this world. And so Letitia, I wanted to ask you, A, like, did you grow up being told that in the, in the home? Like, um, my anecdotal experience has been that just about every Black person I know um, grew up being told that. So did you, did you grow up experiencing that? And if so, how has that played out in your career? Uh, so most definitely, yes, that was emphasized in my household growing up, for sure. Um, I knew I had to work twice as hard to get half as much. I, when I was younger, I didn't quite understand the implications of that or how that would really play out in my career overall. I remember getting performance reviews saying that I had strong work ethic, right? But I really got nothing of it. Um, I had this perception that there is a meritocracy and that you're rewarded based off of the, the work that you're doing, especially if you're working hard. And it wasn't until I went to this unconscious bias training, I realized it was actually a bias that I had that people are rewarded for working hard um, and that it actually wasn't necessarily a truth across the board. Uh, there was a situation where I, I was in where I was up for promotion. I kept checking with my manager, like how, how close I am I, you know, is there anything else I can do to grow, to get there? And I kept getting this like meter range where I was like, oh, you're like 80% there. Oh, you're 90% there. Oh, you're 95% there. And it just reinforced this need that I had to be 100% there to actually get the promotion. Um, and if you know, like if you work on anything, you know what it's like to get that last 5%, right? The amount of effort that you need to put into something to get that 5%. Um, needless to say, I didn't meet 100% of the criteria and I didn't get the promotion. Um, but that's just not the only case where I've seen this happen and play out in my career. One time my mentor told me we were, we were talking about the, the wage gap, right? Where black women make, I think this year was 62 cents on the dollar compared to non-Hispanic uh, white men. And we were talking about that. And so she was kind of joking with me saying like, oh, in your next job. Um, and that was the statistic for this year, not at the time where we were talking about it. But she was saying to me as a joke, like when I go for my next job, I need to ask for a 40% raise. And like 40%, you're like, okay, that sounds like, like ludicrous. Like you're not going to go in and ask your manager for a 40% raise. But then I think back to points in my career where I found out that my peers were making 20% more than me. And I mean, I thought going to like a top, one of the top MBA schools like Michigan Ross, like I wouldn't be one of those statistics where I would be getting paid less than my peers. Like I would just like, that inequity couldn't exist for someone with that level of education, but it does and it did. And I'm part of that statistic. And I couldn't understand how could my comp be that far off if I'm overperforming? Like how long have I been missing that 20%? How long has that been going on? That stuff, that money gets compounded. So we talked about the wealth gap, like that gets compounded over years, over bonuses, stock options, 401k. That's wealth that I was missing out on. And I mean, I wish I could say that this was a one-time thing that I experienced or I only experienced once but it wasn't. And there are other people that I know have experienced it too. 
So when you say, hey, do I believe black people have to be twice as good to get half as much? I don't know if it's exactly half or two times as much, but the sentiment, yes, I definitely yeah. do believe it. <laughs> it, yeah, and it. It definitely happens too frequently for it to be an anomaly, right? It's, um, and I think it's bluntly, I think it's how, it's one of the many ways in which systemic racism is perpetuated where it may or may not be malicious because it happens in the gray. Uh, one of my podcast guests, he had, he had dropped this great quote. He said, you know, racism is crazy making for black people or the recipient of the racism because you're like, did it happen? Did it not? And so it's not just calling people the N-word or using racial slurs. It's in these gray spaces where it's just they keep the carrot out there in front of you and there are ramifications because you have so many years, right, in, in your prime earnings and there is compound, there's real compounding impact to um, suppressed earnings and stock bonuses, et cetera, et cetera. And Maurice, I wanted to bring you in on this question as well um, around this uh, having to be twice as good to get half as much. Do you have a perspective on that? I do, yeah, I was absolutely uh, raised on that as well, um, definitely. And I think that our parents and our elders who share that kind of message to us wanted to instill in us that, hey, hey, if you aim for average input, you're gonna get a significantly less than average output, right? I mean, this is the way it is. So I always kind of view that as like the professional version of the talk, right? You know, the, the whole conversation about here's how you interact with police, this is how you interact in corporate America. Um, and so I think it's absolutely uh, something that is, you, you don't wanna have to say that to like your kids, right? But you know, you have to, right? You didn't wanna hear it when you were young and naive and impressionable either, um, but you had to hear it. Um, and so I think it's definitely uh, something. I think in terms of how it played out in my career, I would say that it uh, cuts both ways because I think it, it kind of ingrained in me this kind of feel of, you know, I need to constantly be working, you know? Um, and so, you know, you guys are going out for lunch. Great. Enjoy that. I'm going to stay here and keep cranking. Um, you're going to happy hour. Enjoy that. I'm going to be here getting some stuff done. And I think that what you miss in that is that, you know, success is not all performance. You know, it's also relationships. And so I think it took time for me over time to learn that, you know, I was going to the extreme in terms of how I, you know, embrace that type of well-meaning uh, guidance that I received as, as a youngster. Um, if I can share uh, one more thing related to that. I don't know if, if many of you guys are familiar with uh, Carla Harris, who's, um, you know, uh, ex-Wall Street executive turned um, public speaker, author, and, and executive coach. She talks about this in the context of an analogy of uh, performance currency versus relationship currency. And the point that she's making is that for a performance currency, it pays the most dividends when you first get there or you first get a new assignment. In that first three to six months, um, you know, knocking out the performance pays a lot of dividends. After that, people say, okay, I get that your performance is here and it's diminishing returns on it. Um, but also performance is not always uh, sustainable, right? You know, sometimes you're gonna do well, sometimes you're gonna screw something up, right? But then she contrasts that with relationship currency. And she made the point that relationship currency always pays. If you got the right sponsors, you got the right mentors, you got the right relationships, that always pays. It's not unsustainable. Uh, and it co continues to give you uh, returns as you move forward. And so I think that uh, I share that because I do think, and I hate to generalize, but I do think that uh, African-Americans, in my experience, 
are more likely to be, um, you know, afflicted with that condition of I'm going to put my head down and work hard um, and kind of maybe miss out on the relationships that is also critical uh, to success. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks for, thanks for sharing that perspective. As we think about like, how do we alleviate that stress? As I've seen it pop up in the comments, the black tax, there's, there's a double-edged sword to this, to this lived experience. It's you're more battle tested. You've worked harder and there's a, there's a definite benefit to it. Um, you know, one of my guests on another episode who's also a Michigan Ross alum, uh, Ted McElroy, he's now the CFO at Fusion Projects. He talked about the positive of it, right? It's you are forged in a hotter fire, you're, you know, you're battle tested and, and you're ready because you've had to work so much harder than everyone else. Um, you've been marginalized, but you still overcame. But there's also, there's the tax piece, right? And there's the frustration and there's people packing up and switching companies to go get their, their just due. And when they leave a particular company, the company is actually confused and heartbroken that this very talented black person would leave. And so Courtney, I have a question for you working in DNI, like companies who don't want to lose these really talented black professionals who do have options to go other places. What do they need to do if they actually want to create a more diverse and more inclusive and more equitable work environment? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I'll start with, I'm, I'm going to reference a report uh, being Black in Corporate America that came from the Center for Talent Innovation. And, you know, that last question, they, they surveyed a number of people and, um, you know, they asked professionals who feel Black employees have to work harder to advance. 65% of Black employees said, yes, Black professionals have to work harder to advance. Well, it was only 16% of white professionals who saw that, right? And when you look across the board, black professionals report higher instances of microaggressions. Uh, they report, you know, more instances of being passed over. They report more instances of experiencing a work environment where they have to cover or they can't be their authentic selves. And so, um, you know, the, the thing that's changing is that, you know, if you're a talented, and there's also a generational piece of this. So if you're a talented black millennial, um, you recognize that you have options. You recognize your talent and you recognize that this is a point in time where you have more access to capital than anyone um, in the history of humankind. You can go do your own thing. You can go start your own thing. You don't have to put up with the day in, day out uh, BS of corporate America. So, you know, I think at the core of it, what everybody wants is fair and equitable um, HR practices. You know, you don't want to have to see and, and ask your manager, well, I'm at 95%. What do I got to do that extra 5% and get some, you know, um, you know, passive aggressive answer about, well, show more strategic thinking. Okay, what is that? Right. So there's these pieces of where if a company could actually clean up and de-bias their HR practices, it would go a long way. But at the end of the day, you can do employee networks, you can make racial commit, you can make racial equity statements. Uh, but if a person's day-to-day -day interaction with their coworkers and manager is one where they don't actually feel like they can be who they are, where they have to put up um, with day in and day out insights, where they see favoritism, um, where they're passed over for uh, no rational reason, and, and you pick up on that, 
uh, you, it's, it's clear why you wouldn't want to stay. The level of grit and the level of determination that it takes to actually deal with that day in, day out is uh, reserved only for those who truly, truly are willing to sacrifice to get there and want that corporate role and want that corporate environment. And so, um, you know, for me, it comes down to those. It's a mix of you have to get the right HR practices, um, but you also have to fix your culture. And actually, the other thing about culture is you got to diversify your culture, right? No matter what you do, we can talk about employee networks. We can talk about allyship. Uh, but the greatest way to actually start fixing your culture is to diversify your culture, right? And then find a way for that diversity to actually find a way to belong. And by belong, just simply meaning when they walk in the door, they don't feel like they have to cover up that uniqueness, which makes them great uh, to fit in. That's what so many of us do. We figure out a way where we want to sit in with the norm. We figure out what's the norm here. How do we have to operate? Can't operate too much. Can't. And, and you know, for black women for so many years, that meant a hairstyle, right? Like there's still right now a legislation in only a handful of states. Um, it's called the Crown Act, right? The Crown Act's only been passed in a handful of states where employers can't discriminate against uh, black women for their hair, right? And so there's all these things that we still have to undo um, that are just legacy of a systematic racism. And so it, that, that's my piece about it. Yep. It's not an easy journey, um, but it is one if, um, you know, committed to, we will see a, we will see return. So. Yeah, there's an interesting thing you said about like deep bias in organization at a, at a situation, <laughs> at a situation where uh, I had, I was actually went out to dinner with another Ross alum from 2013. Miguel Sosa was in the Bay Area. And he surprised me. He said, yo, I'm making dinner reservations. You know, are you comfortable with spending a little bit of money for dinner? I was like, yeah, it's a special occasion. I haven't seen you in a while. Came on through. So we went, ended up going to Atelier Crin in San Francisco, really high-end, three Michelin star restaurant. She's actually the first woman in the United States to ever get three Michelin stars. Um, had this epic experience. I can tell y'all more about it offline, but it was one of, it was not one of the single greatest dining experiences of my life. And so I'm telling the story at work the next day to uh, my team and some other associates kind of gathered around and a VP walked by and he asked, you know, what are you guys talking about? They told him, oh, Nefri went to Atelier Crane. And he goes, oh, how did you get a table there? Now in that, you know, just being blunt, this is a this is a fly on the wall conversation. My first impulse is I want to slap him in his mouth. But I was like, that is not appropriate behavior in polite society. You're no longer 13 years old. You cannot behave that way. So I did not slap him in his mouth. I made some casual segue and just kept the conversation going. And then he waited and I, I told the like crowning piece of the story and how we got a private audience with her, got to hang out drink a bottle of wine with her and his back in his back private room. Awesome. And then he goes, no, seriously, how did you get a table with her? And that's a microaggression that turned to almost an aggression aggression. He just could not fathom how I could have gotten a table at this restaurant, even though I was a Michigan MBA, I was running a very sizable business with a large PL. I was going out to dinner with another Michigan MBA, who was a, you know, one of the most amazing, most talented people I've ever met. Like, how could this black and brown man, this black and brown, this black man and brown man, go out and get a table at a Michelin star restaurant in the Bay Area? In, you know, a few years ago, I don't know people that actually reverse engineer where I was working when this happened. I think is um, 
it speaks to how deeply rooted bias is. Now imagine this individual and all the decisions he gets to make every day, every week, every month, every year about someone's career. And that's kind of how deeply rooted this conscious bias is, which is people can easily point out like, hey, you shouldn't discriminate against women for being women or black people for being black. But then the unconscious bias where you don't openly use slurs and derogatory terms, but it still has the same impact and leaves Letitia looking for that last 5%. She's chasing that 5%. And the 5% is you're black, you're not there. You know, that, that's really what you're trying to solve for. So um, really quick before we get into q and A's, I definitely want to hear from all these amazing people who decided to uh, come and join us today. As quickly as you can, I want to hear from the whole panel. What would you tell your younger self? If you can go back and tell your younger self anything about getting into corporate America as a, as a Black person, what would you tell yourself? And so we'll go reverse order. I think we did Maurice last Last time, so Maurice, you go first. Yeah, I think I think the number one thing I would tell myself, I think I hit, and that is relationships matter. That uh, you need to invest in relationships, and I think particularly sponsorship. Um, so I think that you know uh, I had a um, executive at my firm once say to me, "It's like you know, Maurice, in my observations, I think African Americans are the most mentored, but the least sponsored." Um, and by that, you think about what that means, right? If you're mentored, you know, if, if I agree to be your mentor. I agree to be generous with my time, give you free advice. And what you do with that is, is kind of, you're kind of on your own with that, right? So mentors are important. I don't want to be little mentors. But sponsorship is someone who's actually going to uh, open up doors for you, make connections for you, go into rooms that you can't go to and, and, and advocate uh, on your behalf. And so I think that's a key thing is really focusing in on relationships. And then if we get the opportunity, which I, I think overall is we find more difficult, find sponsors. Awesome. Uh, Leticia? Yeah, so uh, I wish I was on this panel like 10 years ago or, or even 20 years ago, because I definitely could have used the advice I'm about to give to my younger self right now. Um, like the, the first thing I tell myself is that no matter what room you're in, whether you look around and you feel like you're alone, you actually aren't alone in your experiences. Um, and I didn't realize that until I started talking with other people and doing research online. I thought that something was wrong with me, but nothing's, nothing is wrong with me. It's just this is the way the system is. Um, the other thing I, I tell myself is that um, some of this stuff is just bigger than me, and I'm the kind of person that's a problem solver and a self-starter, and I want to go in, and I want to fix things, and I want to do that, and some of these things are just, like, too big, and in that case, like, I just, like, you I needed to have the courage to go and ask people to get the help, whether that's from a sponsor, from a mentor, from a friend uh, that I needed a shoulder to like cry on, um, just to help me get through the situation. And that when I'm in that situation, I'm, I just have to pick and choose my battles. You know, I can, I can endure it, I can fix it, or I can move on. And that's a decision that I have to make and I have to live with. Um, and the last thing is that I should know my worth. And I think about this in the sense of, um, I'm in Incredibles, like I love the Incredibles. And there's a scene where Edna is talking to Elastigirl and she's like, do you know where your husband is? And she's like, yeah, yeah. And she's like, no, do you know where your husband is? And so this is, I would tell myself, no, do you know your worth? And I would mm -hmm. say, know your worth and know your true market value and capitalize on it. Cool. Great advice. Courtney? 
Yeah, I think my piece would be, uh, you know, there's that old saying, if you want to make God smile, tell her your plans, you know, and so, you know, there's always this piece of me that, you know, just knowing that the future is going to throw at it, throw at you what it is. And so, uh, but at the same time, I think if you're going to be in corporate America, you have to be crystal clear on what you want out of it. You got to be clear on your worth. You got to be clear on where do you want to go. And I, I think that that focus um, will help you make decisions that are best for you. Because sometimes I think you stay at places uh, longer than you probably should. Uh, you tolerate things that you probably shouldn't um, because you don't actually have that clarity of what that end goal is. And so if I could go back, I would be crystal clear with myself on like, know exactly what you want and um, and get after it, right? So don't, uh, don't tolerate anything except what's gonna get you there. Awesome. Victoria? Yeah, I think for me, Neff, you really hit hit it with these microaggressions. I think if I could go back and tell my younger self to just have the courage to speak up when those are happening, whether they're happening intentionally or not, it, it, it happens too often. Um, you know, I, I have a personal example of, you know, I worked at a large company and there were not that many, you know, black female, you know, leaders there. And um, I was constantly getting called the name of another black employee, constantly like on a weekly basis. And every time I would laugh at all, oh, it's okay, no worries, but it's not okay. The fact that you keep confusing me with the only other black woman that works here is it's disrespectful and I should have spoken up about it. And those things happen all the time and they're small, right? Like, like you getting the question of how could you have a reservation there, right? Like that is a moment to speak up. Um, and I, I think now I know that and, and there's a way to do it without you know, coming off as the angry black woman or anything like that, right? You can have a fruitful, meaningful conversation about what this means when you do this and please, you know, you know, try to make a better effort. I take the time to know your name. You can take the time to know my name. Um, but yeah, I mean, back then when I was first starting my career, I would just kind of let those things slide. And I think at, at this point, I, you know, it's just not okay for those things to happen anymore. So um, that's definitely what I would tell my, my younger self if I could go back. And then I think just to, to build onto Letitia's point of knowing your worth, I think amongst our community, um, you know, specifically within Black professionals, I think we need to do a better job at telling each other what we're making, what's our compensation, what's our bonus, what, right? That's happening in many other cultures, and that's how they're getting ahead. Um, but for us, it's especially taboo to talk about money, finances, all of that. And I think that that could go a long way as we start to think about how are we truly going to close the gap? Well, we need to know where we're at to begin with, to be able to know how far we still have to go. Um, and I think that that's a big part of it that, um, you know, I've, I've, you know, joined a couple of these mastermind groups and things like that, where we're talking about it, it's out in the open, we're putting it on the table so that we know what to go for in our next role. Yeah, I think, I, so I think you guys all made great points. I think people out there who are listening who are looking for advice um i would i would say to you a little bit of all of that you should you should take with you um the so there's two pieces well i'm going to respond to the thing you just said victoria about sharing i happen to be as a, as a benefit of being a michigan ross alum i have the privilege of being a part of just an amazing network of black men and we actually stepped out and started sharing more information with each other to help each other out. And what that has produced within this group has been um, pretty impressive to see. And then it's, it's, almost, it's, it's almost like crowdsourcing, whereas you might come from a family that's been upper middle class to wealthy for four or five generations. 
And so it's just embedded within your family. You can have a very private conversation with your dad, your mom, your uncle, your godfather's, you know, some partner at a law firm. He can tell you everything you need to know. You don't have to go outside your family for this information. But for a lot of us, we're the first fill in the blank. So um, being a part of that group has been just an unbelievable resource. I definitely think that we should get over our concerns around taboo issues and particular money and talking about that more. And then the other piece um, that I would add is around this um, advocacy piece. Something that's always set wrong with me is people would tell me how much they like me, but I'm objectively crushing it at work. And the way in which I'm crushing it is the right way. It's collaborative, it's team driven, um, bringing people in, but people always want to tell me how much they like me. And you get to a point, I'm a massive extrovert. I genuinely like everyone. And unless you give me a reason. Um, but I, I come from a place of really liking people and I can get along and have a conversation with the doorknob if I had to. But you get to a point where like, I don't care if you like me. I actually take offense when we're having a conversation about my career, you want to tell me how much you like me. It's like, I need to understand, are you actually going to advocate on my behalf? And so if I were to go back and talk to my younger self, it would be able to discern who's actually your mentor and who's actually your advocate. Because some people will try and position themselves as if they're an advocate on your behalf, but they either don't have the power or they're not willing to use their currency on your behalf. I've had advocates before and I know what it's like when, when, they, when they're willing to cast a chip in for you. So be mindful of um, what that looks like. And it really comes down to when they see an injustice, are they willing to be inconvenienced to write it? And if they're not, then they're not an advocate. So uh, I, from the bottom of my heart, I wanna thank all of you all for, for joining this panel. We're not done and really wanna open it up to Q&A now and we'll try and accommodate for as long as possible um, if there are questions. So at this point, I'll pass it over to Marin and uh, she's, gonna, she's gonna manage the Q&A session. Thank you so much, Anefri, and thank you to all the, the panelists for sharing with us um, and bringing your stories so that we can learn from you and, and have positive ripple effects in our own communities. Um, we have had one question come in, and if you do have uh, other questions, please type them in the Q&A. Um, and we've, we've touched on this in, in various responses that the panelists have given, but I, I think I'll still ask this question. Just with the heightened focus on um, in corporate America being woken up to shedding the spotlight on um, raising awareness for systemic racism and trying to elevate um, the black voice in corporate America. How have you personally processed and navigated that change that you've seen within your own companies or, or within your communities in general? Yeah, I'll, I'll go ahead and go first on that one. I think it's two prong. One is which I speak up more to an uncomfortable degree, but so what? I think for me, I just decided you fight to be in the room. The fact that you're now in the room, you can't be quiet. Like you, you fought to get there for a reason. And if you see something that's off or not inclusive enough, you need to say something. And I think the second piece is 
I've lost all tolerance for feelings conversations around this issue. We're aware that it's an issue. What are we going to do? And if people are not talking about a plan, um, you know, I know Victoria was talking earlier about how um, there's this sister with a startup who's tracking all of these corporate statements. The one that I saw that I was the most impressed by was Pepsi because it was laid out this comprehensive plan and how much money is going to every particular area and what they were going to do with it. And I like that as a first step. And one of the things I'm keeping an eye out for is do they really deliver against this plan that they kind of came out and made a statement for, statement about, because I'm at a point to where I'm not really interested in statements any longer. It's been 400 years. Black people are still getting murdered on camera in broad daylight. It's like, what are we gonna do? So that's, that's, that's how I've shifted and I've never spoken this bluntly in mixed company ever in a professional setting. But I think it's important for us to have these honest conversations. I mean, I can say that I've had a lot more honest conversations than I've ever had in my career at this point in time. Um, like there are people who have approached me to have permission to have uncomfortable conversations with frankly, I think are more uncomfortable for them than for me because I'm used to talking and using this kind of language because it's the kind of stuff I had to deal with and navigate with um, my entire career. So it's not that uncomfortable for me to do that. Um, but it seems like there are more people who are waking up um, and they are trying to figure out how to be an ally um, and not from a performance sense, more from an authentic sense. They want to be an ally. One of the things that I did in my company is I worked with another leader and um, because we have a solution where we can gather feedback from customers, we just um, did a test to gather feedback from black people to figure out how they were feeling about the current situation in America. And it spanned things from the pandemic to Black Lives Matter protests and how they're dealing with it um, at work, at home and their social life and everything. And in those videos, we, um, we put together a highlight reel and we shared it with everyone in the company and we had lunch and learns on it um, with, with the two regions that we had. And we had some really interesting discussions that came out of that. So I think Part of it is when you're, you're looking at navigating this, um, we do want to see action, but at the same time, we want to see meaningful action. And meaningful can't, action can't happen unless you have a really good sense of where the issues are. And part of that is because people haven't had a chance to think about it, and they haven't necessarily had exposure to see where it exists to figure out what they can do um, in their individual everyday life as a leader, as a friend, um, what is it that they can do? What action can they take in their personal lives to actually make a difference? And with enough people doing that, then that's, that's a great start. Um, but we need everybody doing that for us to start chipping away at systemic racism. Any thoughts from the other panelists? If not, we have many questions trickling in. I can just um, share from my perspective, it's a little bit different um, since I'm not really in a typical corporate setting anymore and I, you know, I'm at a black owned company, so we're not making big shifts necessarily. But I think personally, one of the things that I have experienced and I, and I saw one of the questions pop up um, in the Q&A is, um, 
I think it would be great if allies, um, you know, from outside of the, the black community took some time to educate themselves on what's going on, read a few books, listen to a podcast, read some articles. There's so much information out there. I think by the end of June, I personally was really, really exhausted from the question of, you know, I'm a white friend and I want to help. What can I do? What do you need? It was just personally very, very exhausting to have to answer that question over and over and over again. Um, and so that's what I would encourage this group. Again, you know, Neff said, you know, we're in mixed company and it's important to, to share, you know, that perspective of it's great if you have, you know, some close black friends that you can connect with, but just know that most of us are getting bombarded with that question a lot right now. Um, and especially, you know, right after the George Floyd murder. So I think that it would be awesome if, if more people could take more time um, to, to educate themselves and say, this is what I've learned so far. This is what I've been thinking I could do differently and get a reaction to that, as opposed to just leaving it as a big blanket statement of what should I do to help, right? Which is really putting a lot of tax um, emotionally and, and whatnot on the person that you're asking that question to, because first, there is no one answer, right? Every single black person that you ask that question to, you probably would get a different answer. Um, and again, the fact that we're getting that question a lot is just very, very draining sometimes. So um, it is, you know, it takes a little bit of work. It takes some time. It takes some, you know, emotional, you know, energy to go out and find some, you know, solutions out there. But I do encourage, you know, any allies that want to be a part of, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement or whatnot, um, if, if they can, you know, take it upon themselves to educate themselves, that will go a long way. And I'll just add to that as well. I, I think it's important to, you know, have those open conversations in the sense that this is a topic that is taboo, right? And so uh, I think that Afro-Americans in general aren't comfortable uh, not as, you know, having had as much experience sharing with others and vice versa, right? And so I think it's just a conversation that we all kind of dance around and walk around, uh, but no one, you know, it's, not, it's less common that you're having discussions. Uh, I know we were talking earlier about, you know, right after George Floyd, um, incident uh, happened, uh, there was kind of a flood of companies uh, making statements. And, and I know my firm initially um, didn't make a statement right away. And that was kind of like creating some angst. Um, but instead, they sent out like a mass email said, all employees, we recognize what's going on. Um, here is an email address that goes directly to the leadership team, the top seven uh, people in the firm. Tell us what you think we should do. Um, and they were flooded with people sharing their stories, uh, and particularly a lot of the African-American employees sharing their own stories with police, as well as sharing their own stories with uh, their own experience within the firm and systemic racism. And then they followed that by having a town hall um, uh, with that senior leadership. You could tell that they had read through those emails and was really impacted by it, right, and really had, um, you know, experienced it in a way, the conversation in a way that they hadn't before. And I just remember one of those senior leaders, uh, she was sharing all the stories that she had heard about um, employees sharing with their experience with police, uh, you know, having guns pulled on them or been falsely arrested or been attacked. Um, and, you know, she's really emotional about it and her voice is breaking up. And then at the end of her statement, she said, uh, you know, I've only been pulled over by police three times. Uh, twice I got a warning and the third time I got a Christmas card, right? And so I didn't know Christmas card was even an option, right? And so the, uh, but I think it's, there's importance in sharing that as well, right? And so that you can kind of see the contrast. And I think that uh, I was really impressed with the way our CEO ended that conversation. He said, you know, everyone is saying that this time feels different. 
but we won't know it feels different until we look back on it and said, did we change anything? And so I think that that's kind of where we need to be now. I think that the, the fact that um, statements feel like progress is a statement itself on where we are, right? Because any other business issue, right? If someone came to you and said, hey, look, your share is declining. And you said, I acknowledge my share is declining, right? That wouldn't be progress at all, right? <laughs> and so, um, so anyway, I think having those conversations is helpful. And but moving to action is, is helpful as well. Yeah, that's a that's that's a, that's a great point. <laughs> share oh shares down. I, I feel bad that shares down. Really? Okay, um, Mary, do you have you have another question for us? Yep, I know we're over time, and we're gonna do one last question. Um, the question is: My company is working on our DEI approach now, and I worry we will not do enough. For example, we'll say great things, but take no action. Any advice on creating programs that will actually drive impact and change? I think this is something that like Courtney would be best suited, but here's what I, here's what I would say. People respond to what they're incentivized against. We actually learned this when we were at Ross, Folly A, Folly B, if you guys remember back to MO class. So, I once worked at an organization, some people from that organization are on this call right now, where it was embedded in a manager's performance evaluation, how good of a people manager they were. It was 40% of their evaluation. So who cared how good you were in your individual projects you worked on, or if your business was killing it, if your job was to manage people and you did a really bad job at managing your people, you were not going to get a great evaluation because 40% of your evaluation was going to be based upon how well you manage your people. Because this particular organization prided itself on developing its leaders internally. So if you didn't manage the people subordinate to you well, they were going to leave or they weren't going to maximize their potential, which means they did not have a chance to become the next VP, COO, CEO, et cetera. So off of that anecdote, if we, want to be able to support diversity and inclusion and we're not developing objective standards and holding people accountable to them where you can have a situation like Letitia has been in as she spoke to I've been in multiple times in multiple organizations where through the objective criteria you're required to deliver for your job you're absolutely questioning but there's just some fuzzy whatever on the periphery, then DNI won't happen if you don't actually embed it into the evaluation process and hold people accountable. Because people will say whatever they need to say, but ultimately what they're going to do is in their selfish interest. And you need to make it in people's selfish interest to de-bias an organization. But more specifically, I think Courtney probably be better equipped to answer that. No, I think that was a fantastic answer. I, I, it's a tough question. I think that was Laura Hoxie, so shout out to Hox. Good, good hearing from you. Um, I do think the piece of this is, um, you know, uh, to that point about incentives. So, like, if your CEO, your CHRO doesn't care about this and they're paying at lip service, there's not the, that much I'm going to be able to tell you to do, right? So, like, there's only so much you're going to get without having your senior leadership team uh, fully bought in and not bought into this idea 
of doing it for, um, you know, recognition or performative or doing it as a reactionary measure, but like doing it as actually not just a way to unlock business growth, which shown it can do, um, but doing it because they actually know that this is actually the right thing to do, right? And so um, if you haven't won the hearts and minds of your most senior leaders, I would absolutely start there. And I actually think if you're in a large organization, every board is talking about it now because it's become a risk, right? So if you're not smart and you don't know how to navigate this, your board should be um, all over your CEO and many boards are, right? And so, um, but when it comes down to effective DNI, it's like effective marketing, effective operations, effective sales, effective anything. You, um, you figure out a strategy, you bring in an expert to figure out what's going on with your organization. You uh, create strategies and you hold people accountable for executing those strategies, right? Like it, it is not, um, you know, DNI isn't some kind of far off, you know, plan to go to Mars thing. It's a business basics, right? And it's an HR basics piece. And so I would actually highly recommend, and I'll be honest with you, some of your organizations aren't going to change. You know, sometimes for smaller organizations, this is just not going to happen. I'm just going to be real candid with you. And you have to make a decision on um, whether you want to work in a culture that's only playing lip service to DNI. I would say if that's the case you found yourself in, you probably should leave and go find some place that better aligns with your values, right? And so um, there's only so much that's going to happen. Uh, and I'll stop there. I think there's one question I can really quickly get in. Um, the sponsorship thing, because it's come up a couple different times. You know, if you want to get your organization to take sponsorship more seriously, um, you expose the bias in sponsorship. There's a ton of literature out there that shows that sponsorship is a false prey to similarity bias. People want to sponsor people who not only look like them, people want to sponsor people who remind them of themselves and actually does themselves a disservice. So if you can get the leaders who are in the highest echelon of the corporation to understand and recognize the bias that comes with that sponsorship and then get them to commit to actually finding ways to branch out on differences of gender, differences of ethnicity, sexual orientation, um, you will open the gates. Now, at the end of the day, you can't force someone to be a sponsor, but if you expose that bias and you build that argument, uh, usually you can get leaders to fall in line and recognize that this is actually, uh, there's a better way to go about it. In my perspective, uh, and, and I like what everyone else has said, it's treated like a business problem. How would you solve a business problem, right? I mean, you will have the strategy, you will have the resources, you will have clear metrics that you're intended to hit, and you will have accountability for those who don't hit it. And so I think if there's, if this is something that either is PR or this is a real business problem that we're trying to solve. Awesome. I think, I think we had, we had one more. Um, Victoria, I'm going to go ahead and let you uh, handle that question. Hope you're still muted, Victoria. Sorry about that. I was going to say, I know we're way over time, but I thought it was a really important question that came in from an anonymous attendee um, that was specifically asking about how do all of us feel about, let me just read it, how do you feel about staff quotas for black employees and black managers? Specifically, do you think it's helpful or harmful for black employees to be hired and promoted just because of their ethnicity? Um, and this is a very, very common um, question slash statement that comes up when a lot of these companies are making those statements and things like that, that I thought we really, it's it's really harmful to allow questions like that to continue to be unanswered. And, and the truth is, we're not being hired or promoted because we are black. We are well qualified and many times overqualified for the role, but we've never been considered before because we were black. 
right? And so there is a very, very big distinction there. And I really do want to make sure that everyone listening and, and everyone that's involved in, in those types of questions um, understands that companies are not going to lower their standards for a role. And that's a big thing that we hear from recruiters and things like that of, well, you know, our diversity is where it's at because we don't want to lower the standards of our role. Of course not. You're, you're running a business. You're trying to generate revenue. Just because you're hiring a underrepresented you know, candidate doesn't necessarily mean you're lowering the bar. And so I just wanted to make sure, and, and it's up for debate, it's up for discussion, certainly. Um, but there is a distinction there, and I, I wanted to make sure that we could address that question that um, you know, a, a Black board member, a Black C-suite member is more than qualified if they get to that seat. Um, it's just a matter of opening up your, you know, vetting processes, opening up your network so that more black leaders can be considered for those roles instead of just looking at kind of the, the five closest people to you that you, know, you grew up with or you went to school with or whatever else it might be, um, which is what we've seen today, which is, you know, a big part of the reason why the Fortune 500 only have, you know, what is it now? three black male CEOs, um, which is crazy. There's 500 companies. There should certainly be more than three black CEOs. Um, so anyway, so I, yeah, I, I, I just wanted to touch on that. No, I was like, no, 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 we need, we need I, to touch on this anonymous question that came through. No, I think it's a great soapbox to be on and to take it a step further. I think the question itself is at best inherently biased, if not inherently racist. If you, I mean, if you think about what it takes to get admitted to a school like the University of Michigan, right? So you're sitting on this panel of five really well-qualified, well-educated, experienced Black individuals. And to assume that us in this microcosm or in this larger conversation, that to hire a Black person for a role, you, you by definition have to lower the standard I, mean, I think Trevor Noah said it best. This is exactly uh, it's the same thesis of what Victoria said. It's like, we're not asking you to hire us because we're Black. We're asking you to stop. Stop. Because it's been an ongoing behavior to stop not hiring us because we're Black or promoting us or whatever it may be. So I don't need to get on the soapbox. You know, Victoria already took us to church and I'm, I'm sending my offering for, for the sermon she just gave. She's completely on point. And um, yeah, I just think that we need to continue having these conversations. We need to continue pushing it forward because if you go back to where they started and talking about Dr. Edwards, we can do so much. We can do so, so much in the roles that we're in right now. And if we want to live up to our credo, for those of us who are Michigan alum who are on this call, I believe all of us are, but I think a few people have snuck in who aren't Michigan alum. Our credo of being the leaders and the best, leaders lead. And so if you, you might not be able to go change the CEO's mind. You might be able to, but you might not be able to go change the CEO's mind. You can change how you manage your team and the culture that you create when you're running a meeting. And it is a regular occurrence that I'm running a meeting with 15 to 20 people around it. And so I might not be able to change an entire organization, but I can change the culture of the meetings I run and the team that I lead. And I think we all can do that in our particular jobs when it comes to hiring, managing, you know, mentoring, becoming um, sponsors, the whole nine. So 
Thank you, everyone. Thanks to Marin and uh, Cecil. I don't know if he's on this call. He hasn't shown his face much, but he's the head of the New York chapter. He's done a great job um, in helping us put this together as well. Um, thank you to the team uh, back at Ross for helping us um, bring this to life. And yeah, let's be vigilant. Those of you, I will make one selfish plug. This will be, this, this um, round table will be converted to MP3 and will be put out on my podcast. If you are a podcast listener who somehow have not already subscribed to Bootstraps, please subscribe to Bootstraps Podcast. And if you're on Instagram, follow us at Bootstraps Podcast. Thanks, everybody.